Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello, everybody. Dear friends, welcome back to Brave New Teaching. Today is a special day, guys. We are bringing to you our very first podcast interview. And quite frankly, we could not have a better interview guest than we have today. Uh, we are so excited to introduce to you guys Dr. Anindya Kundu, who I very informally address right away in our interview by his first name. But Dr. Kundu is a senior fellow at the Center for Urban Research at the City University of New York. And we had a really deep conversation with him. So fair warning, this episode is a chunker, um, but it is going to like get some really philosophical marbles in your head rolling around. Um, Dr. Kundu's work is revolutionary. It's critical for teachers. As a sociologist, it was really cool um, to hear his research from someone who is in a field slightly different from the one that we're in. Um, we explored with him this idea of the opportunity gap um, and how to work toward closing it and how to best serve the students in front of us every single year. And it was absolutely refreshing to be able to talk to somebody outside of the field of education who truly strives to understand the field of education. Because, I mean, right now, if you're listening to this live when it comes out, education's having a, a rough go of it in the wake of, not even in the wake of, in the sea of COVID-19 in the year of 2020. We're having a hard time. <laughs> educators and talking to somebody who truly is 
in our corner and understands the work that we do and wants to help us do that work better is um, just, it was wonderful. You'll hear Amanda and I get really into the conversation. We fangirl pretty hard. Um, but <laughs> Dr. Kundu is an education sociologist, like she said, who studies the contexts that allow youth and young adults to thrive. He's most interested in pathways to opportunity. So he also studies workforce development and higher education to identify the most equitable models worth following. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but he really cares about what he does and we cannot wait to introduce you to him. I think my favorite part of what the, what you guys are going to hear are the case studies and like individual moments that he's spent with um, kids, especially adolescents and um, his work he's done in juvenile detention centers and looking at students who are struggling. I mean, you guys could raise your hand if you can remember a time where you've thought to yourself, I just think this kid needs to try a little harder. <laughs> Dr. Kuna is going to help us kind of get out of that mode of thinking and look at how do we not expect more grit out of kids, but actually help be advocates for them and their situation? So without further ado, I mean, you guys buckle up. Tell us what you think of the episode over on Instagram. We'll be there to talk to you. Of course, we'd love you guys to leave us a review. And of course, we want you guys to take a look at Dr. Kundu's brand new book. It just dropped July 10th. And this book will be a whole strategy um, source for you guys to really just apply to the year coming up. And we're going to have a giveaway coming up soon. So stay tuned for giveaways of that book. And let's get started with the interview. Absolutely. Here we go. listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We are so excited that you are joining us today for our very exclusive interview. Um, today, we are talking with Anindya, and he is going to share with us all about student agency, an upcoming book, and all of the things that you guys heard about in our intro. So I'm going to get out of the way. Anindya, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, cut me off if this gets too long. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You know, I, uh, I wonder how to introduce myself and I realize it's kind of cool to be able to say like I'm a sociologist because it's vague and it doesn't make much sense, but I've worked so, so long at getting this title. Uh, I call myself a sociologist. I tell people not to say Dr. Kundu. Um, and you know, I, my life has been, uh, involved in and around education for the last decade and a half. Um, for, first of all, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, um, but I had a, you know, a divided experience growing up. I grew up in a low-income neighborhood for some of my life, and then we moved to a, a lush, uh, predominantly white suburb, and so I got to see my educational um, experience fully change with the resources that were now available to me. That definitely led me to... Um, be able to go to a really privileged college in Chicago. Um, and that experience was also kind of my first reckoning with um, 
you know, class and racial divide because our university, the University of Chicago, was in the south side of Chicago, one of the most, you know, depletive resources neighborhoods uh, in the country. And while we were in a privileged bubble, the, the rest of the surrounding neighborhoods um, did not look like our campus at all. And we had, I think UCPD, our police department, is like second after the Vatican of being one of the largest private police forces. And it was mostly to police the neighborhood and let us get away with whatever we wanted to. And so that experience led me to then uh, get a research position with uh, U Chicago and Northwestern. My job was actually to go to the juvenile detention facility of Cook County every day and help to process uh, incoming youth who were detained for various crimes ages of 9 to, to 16 or 17. Recidivism rates were through the roof. Um, most kids came back seven or eight times before you know they turned 18. Um, and I got to see firsthand, you know, the, the students in the, I call them students, the young people in front of me who are on the other side of the glass, predominantly 99% black and brown kids, um, only pr pretty much from the south and west sides of Chicago. So in front of me, I had this manifestation of the opportunity gap, as, as I would call it. I came to New York to study policy. Um, also ended up working at the Department of Education for a little bit of time during the early days of Common Core rollout. Uh, during this time, I one of my jobs was to kind of go around the different New York City boroughs and collect principal feedback about how the rollout was going. And so that was a pretty intense, I think, close to research process where, you know, principals are, are you know, very charismatic and, and authoritative individuals who would tell us, the DOE, that we understand the needs for accountability and higher standards, but we don't have the resources to implement them. And so that was another different kind of perspective on the opportunity gap. Took these experiences to study sociology of education, uh, was mentored by uh, Pedro Nogueira, one of the leading scholars of urban education in the country. And towards the end of that period, I also started dialoguing with Angela Duckworth, uh, the preeminent scholar of grit, to think about um, kind of how to expand on her work to include considerations for the opportunity gap. Um, tomorrow, I'm actually doing a Zoom uh, book tour chat kickoff event with the two of them. Um, the details are on my Twitter page for you know anyone who can make it, and I'll post it on YouTube later. Um, but all of my work has been thinking about the opportunity gap from different perspectives, from the classroom perspective, from the school system perspective, and from a community perspective. So uh, that's what really brings me to, to study education. Yeah, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> that is so cool. And just so like fascinating too, because I think as classroom teachers, which we both are, we see what you are coining the opportunity gap. And I like, I like that verbiage, especially as like an English nerd, mm -hmm. because the way that this opportunity gap is treated and talked about at least where I am in Southern California is it's obvious. It's often called the achievement gap, which right. is a misnomer and it's unfair in so many ways. Like unfair doesn't even begin to cover the gamut of all of it. As you well know, um, it's just, I like, I like the wording. Speaking of wording, you just mentioned you have a book coming out and you're going to be starting mm -hmm. your kind of virtual book tour. <laughs> book is yeah. coming out very, very soon. Will you tell us about your book? What is the goal of the book? And what do you hope teachers and other educators will be able to get from all of your research and your writing? Definitely. Um, so the book, the official title is The Power of Student Agency, 
uh, expanding on grit to close the opportunity gap. So I quickly mentioned grit, but I think the grit really plays into the narrative of the achievement gap, which is to say that, you know, our best and brightest students are the ones that uh, consistently can get the highest test scores, can make it to the best colleges, and therefore they land the best jobs. But a broader view really sheds to light the disparities that affect students in the classroom. You know, there's uh, differences in, in teacher quality, veteran teachers versus novice teachers, where do they teach, uh, kinds of access to technology, which is a big one right now. We can see that some students who are doing distance learning don't even have adequate internet access, whereas other students do. Um, so a lot of little things add up to create the opportunity gap, which I think is uh, both an educational problem, but it's also a broader problem related to health, social mobility, and career outcomes. So my work really... Um, thinks about how, what are the workarounds? You know, there are a lot of limits in education, but um, I studied a very specific sample of individuals who today by standard, you know, um, considerations are very academically and professionally successful. Um, you know, they work in law, finance, medicine, uh, higher education, a lot of these like really coveted um, industries, but they also all grew up below the poverty line. And grew up in New York. And so uh, related to those upbringings, uh, my sample of, of participants, they also experienced homelessness, um, food insecurity, broken families, substance abuse, uh, gang involvement, uh, run-ins with the law, undocumented status, the list goes on and on. And so I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a disservice to say that these individuals made it to where they are by their ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, so my research asks, how is this possible? Um, and looking to that, and that question really tries to get underneath what does agency mean and how do we try to inspire and foster agency in our students? Because it, it was a, it was a ton of different social and cultural supports that ended up helping these individuals succeed. And my book goes in depth about what those supports are. And the hope is ideally for practitioners, for teachers, for school leaders, uh, for policymakers to be able to um, be hopeful to think that success is possible for all students, not to have a deficit perspective, but to also realize that there are collective responsibilities that are required to be able to kind of uh, help all students reach their potential. I remember first hearing about Angela Duckworth's book and, and looking at grit. And I remember ha having conversations with colleagues and saying, well, I don't need to read this. Like grit is just what some kids have it. Some kids don't. And if you don't have it, then you can't do it. And it was like black and white. It's like over, like, you know, that that's it. And, and I, I think that the healthy mindset for teachers, I think what you're providing for teachers in, in your book, it's, I mean, I haven't read it, it's not out yet, um, but I, I feel like what I'm anticipating and looking forward to are, um, even what I read in your introduction, just kind of these case studies, these moments, these really humanizing experiences, looking at, at students and individuals as that, as individuals, and not this collective well, you either have it or you don't kind of mentality. Um, and I think the media and, and television, a lot of my students, I work at a predominantly white school, um, but in conversations with them, I feel like a lot of my students are familiar with the success narratives 
of these populations. Mm -hmm. And especially, I mean, we take, um, there's this new, the Michael Jordan, um, and Chicago bulls. There's a, uh, is it Netflix? I don't, I don't know the series. It's ESPN. Yeah. Yeah. It ESPN. is. Like ESPN. Yeah. You know, like series like these that are like, that highlight the exceptional members of mm -hmm. society who have done that, who have, you know, pulled themselves up, up from the surface. That's what it looks like. So I think it'll be really helpful for teachers to help them understand and then help their students understand that just because there are these highlight scenarios doesn't mean that everyone else should just be able to do that if they work hard enough. Right. And I, I really like the words that you use to, to make that point. I, in my book, I, I really try to make the point that my sample of, of individuals who I profile, there's, there's 50 of them, 25 men and 25 women talking about their upbringings and their experiences in and out of schools, both good and bad. And I make the case that we should consider people like that to be exceptional, their ability to really make it out of their limit situations, but they're not exceptions. Because if we think of them as exceptions, then we are furthering that narrative of some kids have grit, some don't. Therefore, we don't have that much of a responsibility to help those that don't have grit. Um, you know, student A is succeeding if they have grit. That means student B must be lazy. But in fact, it, it requires a slightly broader perspective. And so I think that reframing is really necessary. And ideally, yeah. it can be empowering to teachers, too, because I think the not those kids kind of... Um, mantra, it, it's kind of a defeatist attitude, which is not the reason anyone really gets into education. It should hope not, right? Well, <laughs> I, really hope I not. mean, and I think you just hit the nail on the head that in order to foster a sense of agency in our students, we as educators need to have that agency first. Like we need to be able to see that our impact is possible or we, we have what am I trying to say? We have a possibility for impact that is positive and that is productive on every student that comes into our classroom. And it's whether or not we grasp that agency on our own and we find those strategies and we, we have those, those conversations. It's a big mindset shift to not just say, well, I'm really only going to impact the kids that like me, that get me, that, right? It's a very like me-centered approach where really if we're taking something that's student-centered and helping students find their grit, if that's like the word that we're going to mm -hmm. use, we need to have our own agency and have our own motivation and see that we are empowered, like you said, to be able to do that. And teaching is a really like beat you down kind of a, Definitely. it can be anyways. And like- you're talking to two classroom teachers who love our jobs and I am stinking mm -hmm. exhausted, you know, <laughs> and I can't right. wait to get back in the classroom, but I'm also like super not looking forward to it at the same time. It's like it's, it's time. this duality of I'm just so tired, but oh, I can't wait to do the work with kids, but oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And so finding that exactly. agency and like seeing the examples like you're talking about that are exception null, but not exceptions because we are all human beings in this one society here. Yeah. Yeah, I think this would be a good moment. I didn't actually define how I use agency and I define it as just yeah. simply a person's capacity to leverage resources to navigate obstacles and create positive change in their lives. And so that applies to students, that applies to adults, it applies to professionals. And resources can be as simple as a colleague having a conversation with you when you're down. They can be as, as, uh, as concrete as, you know, helping a student navigate a FAFSA application. And so I go into that in the book as well. And I also, you know, touch on uh, this aspect of like holistic well-being and, and 
wellness. Um, and so, you know, a part of grit and achievement is that when you're undertaking these kinds of exhausting yet, you know, fulfilling tasks like teaching, burnout is a real thing. And I think you can get to burnout when you just have grit, but you don't have that social support so you can lose sight of purpose. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the students I profile, they had to drop out of college. They were first generation college students. One student, you know, she was a salutatorian of her high school, uh, would have been the first uh, person in her house to go to college. But, you know, she got to a private elite college and then it felt so new and so foreign. She didn't know she should be going to office hours for a professor. She didn't know she could get books at the library for free. All of these different things added up and she had to take a leave of absence. And it was in that leave of absence where... And this is where some of this work extends out of schools. She, you know, started going back to church and her mentors at church, you know, had gone to college and kind of took her under her wing and were like, listen, this is like the strategy for writing a college essay. And so she re-enrolled and she was able to graduate with flying colors. um, And that's how she overcame her burnout. Um, And so, you know, the book is is full of these stories, which I hope will be perceived as optimistic um, to think about where are the different workarounds, but also schools and teachers are taxed and they need collective support from outside of schools. And how can we provide that as a community? I think that's uh, so amazing. I'm actually going to sidestep a little bit. You're kind of, I love that, that little peek into this woman's life. Um, I am also a Chicago person. um, And I was so excited to, when I was reading through your introduction, just listening to you talk about Englewood and these neighborhoods in Chicago, like it hits close to home. Um, Little backstory that I think some people might know about me is I was actually a Golden Apple Scholar. So Mm -hmm. one of my commitments as a senior in high school was to the Golden Apple Foundation. um, And so I committed to teach at five for five years at a school of need. And so Along with that, we also spent our four summers of college working at schools of need, working in the city's uh, most destitute and struggling areas. And so I've been in those schools, I've been in those areas. And my first year of teaching, I actually applied to work at many of them. And Chicago at the time had this law. Um, You couldn't teach in Chicago unless you had a Chicago address. And as a very poor college graduate, um, I did not have the funds to move to Chicago and live by myself. So I ended up living in the suburbs and teaching in the suburbs. Um, But all of that is to say, I'd love to hear more about your experiences um, with juvenile detention in the city. I mean, what are some of the things that you noticed? I think Chicago is a really interesting microcosm for the rest of the country. Um, Mm -hmm. The racial disparity, the economic disparity that you're describing, describing is so, it's so visceral in Chicago. I mean, what are some of the things that you noticed about the people, the kids that you worked with, um, you know, the problems, things that inspired you? Where, where were you with all that? Sure. I, I have a deep love of Chicago. And, and as anyone else who does, um, it comes with an acknowledgement of its, of its problems. Yes. Uh, you know, it really is a tale of two cities. You have, you know, the South and West Side, and which are, you know, way lower income uh, and resourced than the other neighborhoods that are closer to the lake or, or more north. Um, and it was interesting having gone to this private university and again, seeing that the police really were, were there to let us do what we wanted and kind of patrol the neighborhood. You know, I went to school uh, with a lot of black classmates. I'm also a person of color, but it was definitely obvious to me that when my black stu- black fellow classmates were walking through the quad or a couple blocks tangential to campus, UCPD would stop them and ask them if they belong there. And so when, when a student is experiencing those kinds of 
overt experiences um, or micro or macrocosm, macroaggressions, it's mm -hmm. hard for them if they're a first generation student to, you know, buckle down and focus on the classwork. There's so much more going on there. Uh, the research shows that those experiences, those run-ins can, you know, increase someone's cortisol levels, their stress levels, and lower their life expectancy. And so Chicago is constantly kind of under siege. And so um, these people are having a lot more to deal with than, you know, meets the eye. You know, those are the kinds of things that are, uh, beyond this, beyond the surface that, you know, if we say that if they just only had grit and they could succeed, we're doing, um, you know, we're not looking at the full picture. Um, in my book, I talk about uh, the poem that Tupac Shakur wrote, The Rose That Grew in the Concrete. And I really use that metaphor to talk about Chicago. So Tupac says, you know, we see a rose growing in the concrete. We're not going to talk about its damaged petals. Let's celebrate its tenacity to reach the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree with that, but it's also kind of furthering this grit narrative when we should be really focused on the concrete. The concrete is all of the structural issues getting in the way of other roses' abilities to make it and bloom. And Chicago, Chicago's concrete is far and wide and thick. Uh, it has holes in it. You know, the south side neighborhoods have hole, potholes that the north side neighborhoods do not. Um, so those, those things really add up, and they, they make you really confront the fact that those inequalities come into play into education. The, you know, the unequal distribution of, of funding to schools directly affects schools' uh, achievement outcomes. Um, and so those are the things that, you know, if you think about the broader perspective, it's not necessarily a meritocratic system where just the best and the brightest students are, are making it out. It really has a lot to do with what's the zip code that a kid is born into. Sometimes a child's future in this country really is determined by the circumstances of their birth, even though we really would not want it to be the case. And so in the juvenile detention center, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, you know, those kids... Those I was in the in the boys facility are extremely bright. You know they're quick witted. Um, there's a school attached to the building, and and they're they kind of have various different levels of agency and grit. You know some of them are maybe taking care of their siblings at home, and then maybe going to school, maybe not. But that's also a question of whose grit and whose agency do we recognize and do we celebrate, and how can we you know embody a larger, broader cultural perspective that allows us to see all the different hidden talents that different students have and then try to create a scaffolded way to kind of have them excited about learning. It's that whole idea that we are seeing a lot of in social media, especially in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, where you see in quotation marks, I don't see color. And we're, we're hearing the debunking of like, yeah, that's really not helpful. That's actually quite damaging. And so like you're saying, at least from like an educator's perspective, being able to sit in a classroom and see every single child there as a whole entire being, as a whole entire person with a history and a background and a culture, even the kids that look like me. Like I am a white girl from the suburbs of San Diego. And so on the surface, I look very much like white America, but I have my own experience, you know, I mean, and, and everybody has their own experiences and background and culture from which they come that makes up our individual classrooms. And then like you're speaking to the larger society, remembering that everybody's different <laughs> and they mm -hmm. should be. Yeah. Right. And uh, 
I, I, again, I think you, you hit it right on the head. It's if you're choosing not to see color and we can just use that broadly, you're choosing not to really recognize who your student is as a human being, the person who's in your classroom and the experiences that they have had that do affect their ability to learn. And so I'll, I'll give you one more snippet of a, of a participant that I profile in my book. Um, he, he goes by the name of Jay Studd. It's his MC rapper name. And so that's an alias. Yeah, that's an alias that I let him just have and I didn't pick for him. Um, and so this kid, you know, this black kid, single parent household, um, grew up in Jamaica, Queens, one of the more lower income neighborhoods in New York City. He was, as you may know, you know, special education and punishment. Those things really reflect disproportionality along class lines and racial lines. And so he was tracked into special education with IEPs up until about 10th grade. And uh, it was his 10th grade English teacher that noticed that Jay Studd would always sit in the back of the class, scribble away furiously at a notebook, all class and not look up. And so one day she kind of takes it on herself to just show a little bit of interest, like goes up to him and, and asks to see what he's scribbling in his notebook all day and sees that it's a notebook full of rap lyrics, pages full of really beautiful uh, poems that he had written himself. You know, they may be missing some grammar and punctuation, but, you know, a lot of the, the, the poems showed like literary chops. And so she took this as a teachable moment. She, first of all, got to know an interest of his and she recognized it as a form of giftedness. So I would call that cultural competency. And this is where she provided social support. She said, Jay Stud, if you, st if you start coming to class and just doing your work in my class, one of my good friends actually runs a recording studio here in Queens. We'll get you in there. You can record a song. And so, you know, that really shifted his like motivation towards school. He lived up to the promise. He recorded a song. Uh, he performed it in front of his classmates. He got a standing ovation. And that is a memory that he's never going to forget. It was one of the first stories that he told me when I was interviewing him. And he still, you know, keeps in touch with this high school teacher of, of his because she really helped uh, change his life. And so, you know, who knows what the outcome of his life would be. But today he's, he's an investment banker, uh, one of the largest banks in the city. Um, but I think what's more important is that he chooses to still live in Jamaica, Queens, um, because growing up, he didn't see examples of, you know, role models and mentors. And so he tries to be that for the other kids growing up in that neighborhood. And that's what agency is to me. It's like this collective reciprocal concept that it's not just individual, but it's social. And if we look to cultivate that, we're looking to cultivate, you know, achievement, but also humanity. I, when you guys were talking earlier, I was thinking about how irritated I am um, with a lot of the narratives that the Hollywood has put out about teachers as saviors in these kinds of situations. And I think about, you know, Freedom Riders is a perfect example. But right? I was just yeah. going to say. <laughs> um, dangerous Minds. Like, uh -huh. uh, well, there's so many of them where oh. I feel like what Anindya, what you have to offer in your book and in your work is, is this cornerstone of agency, because I feel like we're either, a lot of teachers are falling on two sides. Either I'm going to pity your situation, feel sorry for you, and maybe make some exceptions. That's not agency. Or I'm going to be tougher on you and expect that you just have grit. And I think where, where you're offering teachers is a place to say, well, this is, this is the step. Like, here are the steps. Here are the situations where you can acknowledge where a student comes from. 
help them get to their next step and then step back because this story's not about you. Sure. <laughs> you know, I, you know, you look great Hillary Swank in a pencil skirt, <laughs> but like, that's not like, this is not your story. This is your students are living their story right now. And I'm mm -hmm. anxious to look at um, those strategies and those, you know, the moments of agency that we can help our students recognize and that we can be part of that solution rather than a, I don't think any of us are freedom writing our way out of, you know, but I feel like a lot of young teachers feel like their job is to lay down their lives and save their students. And right. I, I'm a, a speaking from experience. You know, when I first started, I abandoned eating regular meals. I stopped taking care of myself. I, in my first three years of teaching, I probably put on 70 pounds. Like I'm not even kidding. Like it was, and I, and I really thought I was doing what was best for kids by doing everything for my kids. And I mm -hmm. worked at a very struggling school. My, my kids were like around 80% Latino and their parents were working third shift factory jobs. And so they really needed a lot of help. And I just decided that I was the one to do that. And I just, mm -hmm. I really hope that teachers listening are, are going to grab your book, are going to read about this and understand that while that might be, again, we keep talking about intentions. My intentions were definitely good, but they did not help because as soon as I stepped back and that student went on to the next teacher, guess what happened? Game over. You know, they, they fell right back into those same patterns again. So right. I personally <laughs> am very excited. I think you're going to help a lot of people who, again, have good intentions, but don't know how to help their students navigate that world. Yeah. I, 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 I like what you said also, because that's also the goal of my book is that sometimes we don't treat our students as the experts that they are. And so my book is looking to elevate those student voices that are often absent in the kinds of, you know, research that teachers or schools use for professional development. And the whole thing is rooted in stories. And just to kind of piggyback off of what, what you said, it's, it's impossible to help your students if you're not helping yourself first. How can you care for them if you're not caring for yourself first? And you need kind of that community to champion around you so that you can champion around them. And so that's also the point that I'm trying to bring home is that agency is about helping a student eventually help themselves mm -hmm. um, or themselves. Um, because without that, then as soon as they en enter a new environment, like uh, higher education or a different grade or a different classroom or the workforce, you know, something isn't going to, isn't going to go right. So how can we help students really tap into their individuality, but also use that to, to succeed in a variety of environments? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, because <laughs> I my gears you. get going because I, yeah. I mean, Amanda and I have very similar early teaching careers in that we gave up not gave up, but just became like everything went into the classroom. Everything went into the teacher persona. And that is not uncommon. <laughs> that is extremely yeah. common of not just young, but beginning teachers because it's so overwhelming. It's so consuming. Um, and so being able to have that like mindset and perspective shift really for a lot of us, what you're talking about and what your book goes through with these case studies and interviews is a huge perspective shift for most teachers. I'm going to go out on a limb and say for most teachers, being able to see like where our role is, is not as the sage on the stage. It's not as the savior. It's not as any of these models of teacher that we've seen for generations, but it's more of coaching and like helping to self-discover and yeah, 
and 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 the world of online teaching and learning brings on a whole nother bizarre mm-hmm. layer. And I don't know how right. much experience you have in that realm, but like even just from your perspective, how do you think that your work can help inform teachers as we are looking ahead at a fall of 2020 that is at the time of recording quite unsure, but like mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty sure it's going to be at least somewhat distant yeah, and at least somewhat blended. Where do you think that agency for teachers and student agency come into play in these unique and uncertain learning situations? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. Isn't Um, it? And I think, (laughs) yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, we can start to come up with answers um, along the way. You know, this is a real test of our adaptability, but it's also like an opportunity for a reset to break the routine. Because a lot of times the, the traditional methods aren't working. They're not you know, the, the, what Paulo Freire, Brazilian philosopher, called uh, the jug and mug model of education where the teachers jug, all of the students are little mugs, and they get filled with the same amount of water. That doesn't always work. And if anything, what that does is perpetuate the kinds of systems that we see on a broader scale. And so I think the first thing is to kind of, you know, it's tough every day in quarantine or, or what are you is a challenge mentally, but there's something to acknowledge here about an opportunity for trying new things and getting creative. Um, I think, you know, another word of the day right now is personalized learning, but this is a real opportunity for teachers to practice variations of personalized learning. For me, personalized learning is is twofold. The first is um, kind of meeting students where they are as far as challenges go and scaffolding their ability to, you know, master something and move on to the next one, um, which is tough when you're teaching a group of students to be able to individualize that kind of process. Um, But it's really important so that each student is kind of treated the way that they need and they're not individual um, mugs. Um, And the other, the other, uh, part of personalized learning, I think, is the one that we can really capitalize on in this moment. It's the interest uh, piece, because that's what makes learning personal to students, is when a student is interested in something, how do we allow them to see that their interest is beneficial to the broader perspective of who they are and what they can potentially be. And so right now is the opportunity for us to, you know, allow students to experience and view the world as their classroom. You know, what are the questions that you're interested in asking? Um, Maybe come up with projects for students to, you know, ask questions on their own and then go explore, you know, within means and realms of social distance etiquette. But, you know, I think we can come up with more discovery-based activities and lessons for students, allow them to hopefully, uh, if the technology complies, to collaborate with each other, to work together, to demonstrate both a little bit of their autonomy, to set goals for themselves and check in on their goals, be a little bit more flexible about, you know, assessment, um, but also broadly refer to assessment by means of, you know, universal design principles, by blended learning principles, by social emotional learning principles. you know, I do understand that teachers have real metrics that they need to hit, which affect, you know, the operations of a school. But when you can kind of flex the limits a little bit, the students will end up benefiting from that. And so I think that is a part of the moment right now that we can consider, you know, we have the opportunity to, to kind of push beyond the classroom walls because we're forced outside of them. Do you hear that, brave new teachers? You have permission outside <laughs> of Marie and I to push <laughs> your boundaries and challenge the status quo. Well, I, feel so and- valid- I feel so heard. I feel so heard, India. Thank you. 
Well, and I think I needed that personally. You are hurt. I needed that personally because was- I'm feeling pretty burnt out. It's summer and I'm feeling burnt out. So like that sounds a little silly, right? But when, yeah, when are we ever going to have, as you're putting it, an opportunity quite like this again, where the, like, not just the wheels have come off, but the doors and the roof, like everything <laughs> is off and on fire and on fire exactly. and spinning at high right. intervals. Um, when are and, we? And there are so many teachable moments. Like the, the students and the young people are having their own experience in this time. So how can we again elevate their voices to kind of talk about what they're experiencing? Because you know what's interesting is like while a lot of us adults are are trying to be adaptable and do these Zoom meetings and everything, who knows what the future is going to look like for them? It might look a lot more like this. So we yep. should, you know, that's why we should celebrate the moment. And allowing them to have their voices takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to know everything because, oh my gosh, no one does. No one ever really does know everything, but now it's more apparent than ever. So like, I think that for teachers is one of the hardest things in the world is to go with the flow. It is very difficult when you are a planner and you're ready and you've got all your strategies and the most novice to the most veteran classroom teacher, one of the hardest things is just flowing with the situation <laughs> because right. we're used to wearing so many hats and managing so many things at once that we have our own styles and what what have you but like you're saying seeing this opportunity and seizing this opportunity to raise student voices and to let them see their own importance and their own agency in their own education and lives is like the time is now everyone and i'm yeah. saying that mostly to myself if anybody else wants to listen, but that's Marie, the time is now. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we are at our very last question for you. I mean, I'm sure we could, I would love to talk to you again. We, we should do a Same part here. B another time. This has been delightful. Sure. We should, we should do another one after we've read the book. That would be great. Okay. Yeah. We are all doing a bunch of hypotheticals now, but at this, at this point, I think I'd, I'd really love to hear from, from you and India. If some, this is an out again, I love hearing from you because you're not a teacher. And so I think it's so useful for us to remember that there are other people. First no, teachers are very good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Everyone. Well, I was just, I was personally going to say too, like take some of what I say with a grain of salt because I'm, no, I'm not in the classroom. It's all truth. It's all no, truth. but here's, here's a big difference that I will say as, and I'm going to totally cut everybody off talking to you as a non-teacher, like talking to two classroom teachers, there's, there are two ways that, non-teachers will talk to us. It's that they know everything because they were once a student or it's with great empathy because they see what it is to be an educator and you are the latter. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. (laughs) What would you tell, I would, I want to know, like, what would your number one piece of advice be for a brand new teacher starting this school year? Like, what would you tell this person from, not necessarily from a COVID standpoint or a distance learning standpoint, but sure. from, from your work, what would you tell a new teacher and what would you tell a veteran teacher starting August, September 2020 to think about? Definitely. So for new teachers, you know, I, I'm so impressed by teachers and I, I want to make the point that uh, being able to change one student's life, even if it's like that week or that month or, you know, their whole life is systems change. You know, so no matter what, like teachers, everything they do is systems change. Every little 
practice that they can employ, allowing their students to be themselves. And so the advice would be to, as best as you can, get to know your students as individuals, get to know who they are, where they come from, what matters to them, like their basic humanity. And, you know, you know I use cultural competency lightly in my book, but there are there are easy ways to do this and there are non-genuine ways to do this. And so one student student who I profile in the book, uh, his his story always comes up to me. He he was homeless growing up in New York. He slept in subways with his mom. And then he got his aunt who lived in Edison, New Jersey, a much cushier suburb kind of took him in and you know that experience obviously changed the structures in his life and and really put him on another path but one of the memories that he remembers is in middle school he had a teacher who anytime something about Hispanic culture came up would call on him specifically um, to see if he had an opinion on the topic Um, and so that was actually a way of not getting to know him and alienating him by cultural incompetence that's not a genuine way of getting to know your student if you got to know your student you might have a better uh, window into their life you wouldn't ask him about family meal time if he came from a broken home where they're not having family meals. Um, and so there are ways to do this where it's just like get to know your students' interests and then, you know, you can figure out what is the right moment to call on my student and, and let them shine. Um, and so I think it really just comes from a place of, of humility and just, you know, appreciating who these young people are. You know, with, with vets, it's a, little, it's a little tougher, but I think we kind of touched on it. I think it would just say, um, you know, Consider each moment to be a teachable moment and for yourself also a learning moment. Um, You know, challenge your preconceived notions. Right now we're being forced to do that, but uh, this is a moment to try to, you know, exercise flexibility. And for those of those teachers who are very rightfully so feeling exhausted and burnt out, the advice for me uh, from a mental health and wellness perspective is take care of yourself too. You know, remember what, like, do what it takes for you to remember the passion behind teaching why you enjoy doing it and fulfill, you know, the part of your soul that needs to be fed so that that comes off in your teaching. Uh, When you're an excited teacher, you're going to get excited students, Um, which is why, you know, I think that's the piece of grit that is missing the the context specific part. You know, a a student will show grit in a classroom where they enjoy the teacher teacher's company and they won't in another because they don't. And so those are the kinds of environments that, you know, we can create if we have the right headspace. So, you know, mind your own mental health and then just like, you know, push the limits of your own creativity and, and flexibility. And, and that actually reminds me, um, when we were having this conversation, my own story is that uh, my eighth grade teacher who I didn't have any personal, you know, connection with or affinity towards we had to do a a lesson in her class where we my humanities teacher she had us do a how-to speech in front of the whole class and I was a really shy brown kid in a new environment and for some reason I got in my head that I was going to do how to procrastinate and get away with it Um, and I wrote my first speech and in you know uh, at the end of the at the end of the presentation I, I for some reason felt like saying, and, and I don't even know what I'm doing because my note cards are blank right now. And I just threw them. And then the whole class loved that moment. And the teacher made me, you know, give my speech to my math class and to my science class. But that one moment, because it was a new thing she tried, really broke me out of my own shell. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about that before I had this conversation with you. I, I literally think that one lesson in unit definitely changed my life for the better. And so you don't know what 
lesson or, or, you know, module that you're going to teach one day, what impact it'll have. So, you know, be flexible to trying new things. That's so cool. I love hearing stories like that. I know. <laughs> it feels so good. I know. Well, there is one thing that we end every episode with, and I don't really want to end the episode because I'm loving this conversation. I know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, not talking to you. We should do it again. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd like, to, I'd, like to, I'd like to have another conversation in a few months when we have a little bit of time to put some of these things into practice and maybe even take in some like audience um, – Thoughts. Questions, yeah, yeah, questions, yeah. reflections. And to take a break. That could be kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. This break word you speak of. What's that? <laughs> um, so there is something we do at the end of every episode where we talk about something we're obsessed with. And sometimes it has to do with actual teaching stuff. And sometimes it has to do with candy or like a case <laughs> of soda from mm-hmm. Costco. So I will start off uh, right Great. now. I, well, actually mine's going to be curricular because I have it in front of me so I can remember. I bought this book. It's, this book is anti-racist by Tiffany Jewell. Um, I bought this book, like, I want to say mid-March. I want to say it came in the mail the day before the pandemic closed all the schools, right? And because I knew I was going to be teaching a new class next year. And now I've really been looking back at it. It's kind of been in the back, like the bottom of my bag for the last couple of months, just while I've been navigating social distancing and all of that stuff. And I am obsessed with this book. It's been all over Instagram and social media and it lives up to the hype. This book is anti-racist is fantastic. I love it. And India, what are you obsessed with right now? What am I obsessed with? I'm going to go with uh, non nerdy or dorky things uh, like we mentioned. So, you know, this is really bad. I realized I'm kind of, as someone who's kind of new to this, I'm getting a little bit obsessed with Twitter uh, it's oh. really unhealthy because it just allows <laughs> all of these Americans to just like say what they really want to each other. And it's yeah. just like this unfiltered circus. And I can't like pull myself away and I can't avoid getting in arguments with complete strangers. Um, you know, I, I asked my wife, like, what what is something that I'm, you know, obsessed with right now? And she didn't even take a second to respond. <laughs> Twitter. Stop asking the question. I need to get off Twitter. Um, And uh, another one would be, I think, uh, on Netflix, there's a show called Alone. Um, It's like these people are just thrown in the middle of the Arctic um, and told, like, they see who can survive. It's like a competition. And it really makes uh, quarantining in an apartment, a small apartment with electricity and food in the fridge (laughs) seem, like, luxurious. Uh, So that's, like, a a good show for perspective. So my husband is my obsessed right with that show right now. Oh, okay. He keeps telling cool. me about these episodes and the guy, and then the one woman lost too much weight, so she had to be removed. Oh, and I'm man. like, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Amanda, what there, are you obsessed with There's something with right now? there about teaching and learning, but I'm not yeah, sure. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> there always is. Um, I would say right now I am obsessed. Well, I've already been obsessed with Everything Bagels. They're my favorite nice. uh, food group. Uh, that, that, (laughs) that alone. Um, but I have now discovered everything bagel seasoning in a jar. So I am now seasoning everything with everything bagel seasoning. And it's been incredibly joyous, um, because now I don't have to have a bagel. 
Um, I've made it on chicken. I've made it on, um, I've done like a pizza, like the Pillsbury pizza dough wrapped around a hot dog and cheese for my children, a little seasoning on top, feeling fancy, but mostly like that savory, salty. I just can't even, yeah. I can't even. My I have a jar it. of it myself. Oh, it's so delicious. good, right? It's so it's, good. I put it on eggs. Yeah. Oh yeah. So good. I don't even know what's little, in it. I don't plug. think I want to know. Yeah. I, I just want to eat it. Yeah. You got to get them as a sponsor. <laughs> I have the all brought to you brand. by Trader Joe's yes. everything bagel season. Yes, oh, I'd love Trader Joe's. I miss sponsor. Trader Joe's. I haven't been to Trader Joe's. <laughs> in teachers, two months. teachers are down with Trader Joe's. That's yeah, yeah, I love me some snacks. For sure. Well, before we <laughs> before We're we right come on another snack agency tangent, <laughs> we <laughs> are running out of time here. So, will you please tell our fun listeners where they can find you and connect with you and get their hands on your book. Sure. I'd, I'd love to. So uh, I think what's most important is for people to be able to know how to spell my name. So last name is K-U-N-D-U. First name is Anindya, A-N-I-N-D-Y-A. Uh, I forgot what my Twitter handle is right now because I changed it yesterday. Uh, so I think it's Kundu PhD. That's my Twitter handle. I we'll think. make sure that the correct link is in our show notes. Sure. <laughs> but my, my website is anindiakundu.com. I've done two TED Talks on expanding our notion of grit. That's one. And one on the opportunity gap. And also on my website, I have a ton of free resources and articles about teaching and learning and inspiring and fostering agency that I think could be helpful. Uh, the book is called The Power of Student Agency, and, and you can pre-order it now. Um, and I think that's a good place for people to start. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the podcast today. This has been delightful. It was a pleasure. It was so lovely to meet you guys. You Thank too. you so much. We will talk to you very soon. Bye.